Congratulations, you made it to the Xfil. Sit back and relax, empty your bags, and we hope you enjoy the show. Hey there, Mike, a.k.a. MTB Trigger here, and with me as always is Ronald, a.k.a. Eric, my fabulous co-host. If you are brand new to the podcast here, this is an Escape from Tarkov podcast where we talk about all things EFT, and our goal is to get better at the game, and we hope you come along with us on that adventure. So today, we are going to be talking about all things flea market related, how it works, how to make money and probably a lot of stuff in between that as well. But before we jump into that, let's get our hideout keeping out of the way. And first, as always, the best way to support the show is just telling a friend about it. If they're thinking about Tarkov, if they said they're never going to play this game, but you think they might, or they're playing it and you know they haven't listened yet, just sharing the show with them is the absolute best thing you can do. The second best thing that anybody that listens can do is, for one, listen to the full show on whatever you're listening to, And two, leave a comment, a like, a five star, or whatever. And speaking of reviews, we haven't given an update in a while. We're up to 138 unique reviews on iTunes. But I also wanted to specifically welcome our new listeners on Google as well as on Spotify. The numbers on those two platforms have skyrocketed. So while you can't leave comments on those particular spaces right now, welcome. We're glad you're here. Glad you found us. Welcome to the Xfil. So I want to talk about Discord just really quick before I bring Ronald in and voice channel etiquette. And the reason I want to do that is there's currently a bug where in the locked channels, meaning two-man raid, three-man raid, four-man raid, that have limited people quantity, so you can only have two or three people in there. The go live tool through Discord doesn't work very well, if at all, in those. So people that are using that go live tool to watch their partner who has been killed or show somebody a run or whatever are having to go to the open squad channels. And the reason I want to bring this up is it's not necessarily an open invitation to join the squad channels. And I know if they're streaming, it can be really, really easy to be like, oh, they're streaming. I want to go see what they're doing. It's pretty disruptive. They're probably in the middle of the raid. And that Discord stream is usually a tool for the squad that they're in. So if people are in the LFG section, join that all day long. But if someone's in an open squad channel, send them a message first because they may be wanting to run a two-man, but they can't use the Discord tools in the locked two-man channel. So just a heads up on that. Help us out. Try to have squad joining etiquette, use DMs, but as always, and this is in the rules, do not join a channel and just start talking because your voice is probably really loud. And if they're in the middle of a tense situation, they already heard the Discord ding that you joined. And if you start talking, it can be really, really challenging. So just a heads up there, help us out. And lastly, for my part of the hideout keeping, you can always find me on Twitch and Twitter at MTB Trigger. Look forward to seeing you out there. Mr. Eric, Ronald, let them know how they can find you and what's going on. Hey guys, how's it going this week? You can always find me on Discord. Uh, hit me up once you join our Discord where uh, Mike and I are both at the top of the host category. Go ahead, send me a DM 
And that's the best way to get a hold of me. There's also, you can always follow on Twitter at Ronald Gaming. And also the show, you can email the show at xpmedia2020 at gmail.com if there are things that you want to send to us that you can't do on Discord or through Twitter. Also, this week, we continue to grow on YouTube. We're just crossing the 500 subscriber threshold on YouTube. We're very thankful for that. So thank you to everyone who's subscribed. If you can, please continue. If you haven't done that right now, pause the podcast, open up your YouTube app, find XP Media now, and just hit subscribe. And be sure to look for all of our Exfil Bootcamp videos there. We've got some other videos on other games, and of course, always the talk show version of this show is posted there as well if you want to actually see us while we record the show. But anyways, we appreciate everyone doing that, so that's our ask for the community. Awesome. I'm going to echo that and say thank you for those of you that subscribed on YouTube. Again, just echoing that ask. Help us out there. We are doing extremely well there. The videos are getting more views. We're reaching new people there, getting new people commenting, and some of them are joining the Discord. So welcome to you guys as well that came from YouTube. But uh, yeah, man, how was your week in Tarkov? What happened this week? It was a pretty productive week. So in the past, I, a couple episodes, we've been talking about strength leveling. For me, this week was all about strength leveling and getting into some hideout progression type thing. So I'm definitely into the middle of the hideout progression and strength leveling was a very large part of that for me this week. So I decided to figure out how I could level strength. And so that took me down a couple different rabbit holes. One of them had to do with nighttime raids. And which then took me down the rabbit hole of some tasks are actually easier to complete at night. And so we started doing a little bit of that. And so, yeah, that was that was basically kind of how my week overall went. Nice. Yeah, I was thinking about the nighttime raids that we did. And we, we started doing them because you had a couple tasks for killing scavs on customs. But then you also had to do like the three hardest quests there in the same raid which was delivery from the past, chemical part two, and pharmacy, I think it was, if I remember right, where it's basically dorms, dorms, and then the customs office, which are three of the hottest places on the map. So we decided because I had the kill Mosins between 2300 and 4 a.m., I was like, hey, man, do you mind coming in on a night raid so that you can get some kills and I can get my kills and we can try to get your tasks done? And it was actually really fun because I've only really done night raids by myself or in a duo on factory. Besides when I first did night raids way back when I started, like probably my sixth or seventh raid ever was a nighttime woods run, which was like the biggest mistake of my life. And I had no idea what I was doing. That map felt huge. I didn't know any structure. I didn't know where anything was. I had the map open on my other monitor, but that didn't matter. I was terrified. I was scared. I got through it, but I didn't go back to night raids for a long time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So <laughs> so anyway, we we jump in there and I don't know, man, it was just like a different immersion level. Like there was something special about the nighttime raid. We're both using suppressed Mosins and we're creeping up on the dorms. And there was a point where we were just, we were kind of late, but we were just sitting there waiting for something to happen to see if anyone was in there. And we have a guy run by. There's another guy that starts going up the three-story dorms on the outside, 
And we're just plucking people off and taking shots. And you watch how frantic people get in night raids when you shoot at them with a suppressed gun. It's actually hilarious to go in with a suppressed Mosin on a nighttime raid and play a little bit slower. Yeah, for sure. We were actually hiding in a bush watching the south end of the dorms. And this is this is really great. You got to like set this up for a minute because this was some of the most fun like we've had in a long time. People were running by because it's pitch black. It was cloudy, so it really was pretty dark on the map. Both having suppressed Mosins. We're both covering like different angles of the same area. You could see through from you were you could see through the window right by the exit to the door. And I was at a different angle and I could see past the building. And you shot out the light, so there was even less visibility if you weren't having any kind of night vision optics or anything on. And we just sat there and plinked people off as they went by. And it really is something. I had someone walk right past me, probably within like three meters, and they never knew I was there. And also, too, pro tips, like you're sitting in the bush, and you taught me this week about how to move your head without moving your gun. You don't make any noise when you move your head. I forgot about that. Yeah, so you hold down your middle mouse button and look around and you move your head without moving your gun and it makes no noise. The big advantage is sound. You can get your sound direction, finding stuff all figured out without moving your gun and making any noise yourself. And that was a huge, huge, I would say, advantage for us because obviously... They didn't know we were there. So anyway, so a couple people ran by. We plinked a few people off as they kind of went by. But then we, we had this like one guy who kept going in and out and in and out. We shot at him a few times. And eventually, you know, I think we eventually did get him in the doorway. I don't think we got that guy. I think he made it out. I don't think I think he no. Remember, we shot at him because he kept going up and down like three times. And then the last time. He peeked out, we both shot and missed, and then I think he went out the other side. He finally got smart. Yep, that's right. I think you're right. He did go, I think he did go out the other way. But we definitely were playing with that guy a little bit. And it's just a totally different dynamic at night. I actually think it's a great equalizer at night. And so I used to be kind of afraid to run night runs just because it's so different. It's like a different game all the way together. It is, I think, a lot easier to to get specific things done and if you're not in a hurry. And that's why, you know, like besides camping for a little bit there and then we moved from our bush into the building. And because of that, because we waited for as long as we did, the PvP that happens in that area was already complete. And then we moved to, uh, okay, we've got tasks to do. So we were able to get our tasks done. Something went down inside of dorms on that that second level. We ran into like a whole hallway full of full of chads. <laughs> they had some violence <laughs> that went down up in there. We looted. Uh, we got the two tasks done that I had in the one that you had, and then we made our way back towards um, our exfil. And you know, it was a it was a good raid. It was a good raid. It was good to start to use some night optics. I ended up using night raids from there that point in the week on to do other tasks that I had and to do strength leveling. Yeah, and I think it's funny because I was just going to talk about just the general night raid and how it was awesome to do. But we had kind of talked before the show about whether we were going to announce what I'm about to talk about. And it seems kind of fitting because that night raid with you was actually so impactful for me because of three or four different things. But getting tasks done, being able to sneak around a little more effectively. And I mentioned that woods encounter that I had early on that kept me away from night raids. 
And it was so impactful to the point where I had some downtime and we're building a website and it's probably going to be live by the time you hear about this. And this is what we were talking about announcing and we weren't sure if we we're going to do it or not, but here you go. Bear with us if it's not completely up to speed when you hear this, but it's going to be xpmedianow.com. I was writing my first blog post, which was based on this night raid. Because it was so impactful, I actually started taking notes at my phone while I was watching TV one night after this raid because I realized that my initial reaction to an early night raid when I didn't know the map was so bad that I waited almost 40 levels to actually dig back into night raids on Factory. But even then, I didn't go do night raids on other maps. And the only reason I thought to do it was the end game tasks that force you to get kills in those nighttime time windows. I'm glad I'm back in it, but it was really impactful for me. It was a great raid. And I was sort of trying to brush over it because I didn't want to admit that my strategy was to sit in a bush and watch dorms so that we could do your two tasks in the dorms. Well, there's nothing wrong with that, though. That's the thing. However you get through each one of these tasks is however you get through the task. And sitting in a bush for a while and watching people come around, I don't feel bad about that because I've been sniped from long range so many times that that's just part of the game. There's nothing shameful about doing that, in my opinion. (laughs) The Chad and me repels. <laughs> but it, it is funny, though, because and those of you that have watched me play or watch the videos or the stream or whatever, like I, I play much slower than it may sound like I play here on the cast. Like I, I definitely lean more towards Chad, but I am fully willing to wait and scope it out, especially when tasks are at risk and especially tasks that require you to do multiple steps. And you have to survive the raid afterwards. So, yeah, there is nothing wrong with it. But I was just sort of laughing that that you're like, yeah, we sat in the bush. And I was like, oh. (laughs) (laughs) Well, think of it like this, though. I mean, you can, I think the Chad play style is only applicable to certain areas, just like the rat play style is applicable in certain places, right? Like you really can't play like a true rat on factory. I mean, you, you kind of, you have to do some kind of PVP on factory. Whereas on the larger maps, you know, they're more accustomed to having the more slower progression of play style. So there's, there's a good healthy balance of both, but uh, yep. For everybody out there, Trigger sat in a bush with me and, sh- and shot people. So ha, I win. well and it's funny because the other task that i got this week was the m1a suppressed reap ir task to use the thermal vision and get 20 pmc kills with that 300 to 400k m1a so two things that i (laughs) am not usually doing but it's been fun to just play a little bit differently and it's something that i appreciate about moving into the end game tasks and some of those late trader tasks because they really do force you into a certain play style to get it done. And if that's not your normal play style, it makes you think and go to different areas. And I'll tell you what, I've seen more of Woods and know more about Woods now as a result of these tasks. And I'm really grateful for it. I mean, when I first started doing some of these things, I found a violet key card on Woods, which was amazing. Is worth a lot of money. But now I actually know most of the map and I know how to avoid other thermal users. And I know where thermals don't work really well. You know, so if you come up on this task or you're afraid of people with thermals, 
stick near the coast because if you have a thermal scope and you look out towards the water, it is a giant glowing beam of white and you do not want to be looking at it through the thermal scope. So that's why I know to go towards the rocks or the coast on woods now because most of the time someone with a thermal is looking that way, they're going to have a really hard time spotting you. So it's been really neat and I actually really appreciate some of the tasks that get me out of my normal play style. Yep, me too. We had a lot of fun this week. We did a lot of different tasks and things this week, specifically about the nighttime rating and nighttime like playstyle differences. I have started to use nighttime rating on Shoreline, which everybody knows is my favorite map. And farming scavs is such a different dynamic at night because scavs aren't wearing any kind of nighttime vision. So they're depending on sound if you aggro them, right? And are direct seeing you in a light or something. You can snipe scavs to the point where you can get marked and cursed if you want to at night right on shoreline and it is it's a super interesting and really fun kind of game within the game to do and i i did that in two different places this week and something kind of cool happened that i want to talk about because it's the first time this has kind of really happened and i want to get your opinion on it so i was farming scavs at uh, the power station in the middle of the map and i was using a suppressed mosin i had killed four scavs and then all of a sudden another one had spawned in a totally different place. I was sitting on the hill looking south. So I was between the power station and the resort, looking south towards the power station yard. And of course, there's that sniper scab on the top of the roof at power station. I killed him. I killed three scabs in the yard of the power station, which is in the north side of the building. And then all of a sudden, two more scabs spawned, but they spawned way off to my left in places where I've never seen a scab before and was started shooting at me. And so I'm wondering if the game, there's two things. I'm wondering if the game does that, like if the scav spawns adjust, and I don't know if they do or not, but that would be interesting if it did. And the other thing is, I didn't die, but I got shot, and I think they damaged my night vision. It went all blurry, and it it wasn't like blurry like I was having some kind of physical pain. It was like fuzzy, like the optics were going bad. And so I don't know if that's a thing or not. The next raid that I went in, it was fine. So I'm not sure how I'm not sure how that works, how damage to, to optics works. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, so I'm almost positive I know what happened. I don't think there's damage to optics at all. But I guarantee, close to guarantee, that your helmet ricocheted a bullet. Because when that happens, and I think it's called a contusion when it happens, but when that happens, you get a very blurry effect on your vision in the game. And it's when your helmet ricochets a bullet. So I bet you that scav had a headshot and your helmet ricocheted it. Hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure. But whatever happened, it was kind of like I was looking through uh, like an old time TV where like the vertical adjustment was bad. Yep. And so it was just a weird kind of fuzzy deal. Where, did you get a ringing sound? No. Hmm. There was no okay. ringing sound. It was just uh it was just like I was looking through looking through a picture that was like out of adjustment. Yeah, you may it may have been a tremor or a contusion that caused it. Yeah. But it was a cool dynamic, you know, nonetheless. And so I actually killed seven scabs there and then made my way out and uh just a different dynamic, uh using nothing but night vision. In, in a Mosin, a Mosin is so good for that. It's a lot easier to spawn in shoreline at night and then start running to one of the contested areas. I've noticed that even I killed some other players, they weren't wearing night vision. And it's like in factory, everyone wears night vision, right? You know, even in customs, I killed a player on my last customs raid at night. 
he had night vision on too. But in Shoreline, I have not killed another person outside of resort that had night vision on. That's crazy. I, I was good at doing it during the day, but it is just almost unstoppable at night because it seems like the night players in Shoreline are all going right to resort. Mm. And, and they skip everything. So I was at like 38 minutes left, which is, you know, that's pretty far in. I went to, I made my way to the weather station. There was still a Tetris on the floor. Wow. And so I just stood up there then and farmed some scavs. So I think it's kind of a big deal uh, using uh, night raids and kind of getting comfortable with it. I am going to continue to dig into night raids. <laughs> we didn't really plan on talking about it this much, but if you have fear around it, I'll say this, I think the most critical thing to have success in night raids and feel good about it is map knowledge. Now, you'll go into a night raid on a map that you know really well, and Factory is a good example of this, and night raids change the dynamic a little bit because of lights or lighting. You know, for example, if you know the office hallway on Factory really well, it's a very different scenario on a night raid because the two fluorescent overhead lights and the one bulb in the hallway or the breezeway are extremely bright and oftentimes you're going to want to shoot those out, which lets people know where you are, or you're dealing with obscuring your vision, which can also be challenging. So map knowledge, map knowledge, map knowledge. I wouldn't be going and doing night raids on a map that you're not very good at. You know, so if you're like, man, I don't do shoreline a whole lot. I'm going to go do it in a night raid. I don't think that's the best way to go. I would say the map you're the best at, do night raids there because you're not going to get lost or turned around. You just may have to deal with a few environmental things that you weren't aware of before. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think if you've never really done factory, I wouldn't start with factory <laughs> at night. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. That place is brutal. But at the same time, though, I wouldn't be afraid to just try it. I think there's different levels of night vision equipment. And so why don't you speak a little bit to that? Because the helmet that we were using and the budget version, budget setup of night vision that I was using that you had recommended really doesn't cost that much. It's probably less than 100K for the whole setup. And it was very effective. One of the questions I had was, can I look through the scope and still see, you know, does the night vision kind of work? How does that interact with looking through longer range scopes? And it really works great. So I, I think we should talk about just our setup. Yeah, so there's quite a few options when it comes to night vision. And you really have two main ones. One is to use a scope, whether it's a thermal or a night vision scope. Or you can use a mount on the helmet that gives you night vision. So some people call it NVGs. Some people also refer to the most expensive night vision goggles outside of the ridiculous one as NVGs. So the one that I specifically like is called the PNV-10T night vision. And that's one that you can attach to inexpensive helms. And the night vision itself costs like 30k. And then you need some mounts and attachments. But if you were to buy the helmet, the mount, the night vision itself, it comes in right now about 70 to 80K. So if you happen to find a helmet or you found the night vision, it just gets cheaper. So yeah, so that's that's kind of your choice there for the kind of entry level. And then at the extreme level, you have things like the T7 goggles, which are, you know, 5 million plus rubles right now, which are basically ridiculous. It's like having clear vision Everything's black except for other players are like white silhouettes, but you can't use a scope. That's the downside. The other 
more efficient option is the PVS-14. And basically the difference between all of these, right, this one runs about 66,000 for just the night vision. Ultimately, what you're going to get in the entry-level ones is a restricted field of view and the picture's a little grainier. And then the more you spend on the better night vision, the more field of view you have and the better the picture is. So if you ever come across somebody or kill somebody that has the night vision helm that ha- looks like it has four tubes coming off the front, the, is it GNVGs? I think that's what it is. But basically the NVGs is what most people refer to them as, but it looks like four tubes coming off the front and those have extremely clear vision and the field of view is really large. It's your whole screen, I believe. Whereas the other ones are restricted. It almost looks like binoculars that you're looking through. I've had success with all of them. I don't think you need to wait until you're spending 150k on a set of the really good ones. I think, like Eric said, you can go in and spend under 100k and do these raids. And frankly, most of the time, I think it's going to cost you between 60 and 70k because maybe you found the helmet that you can throw it on. Yeah. And the big difference is that most of the people who do night raids, at least right now, I I don't think are doing this particular way of going about doing tasks. Seems like people seem to favor doing that during the day because they're kind of afraid of night. I've been doing a lot of customs for tasks and customs is infinitely easier to get a task done at night. And I'm just saying that if you can just try it, you may die a few times. So be prepared to donate a little bit of gear. But once you get the hang of, you still can't stand in the light. So, but once you get the hang of staying in the shadows more, scavs can't see you because they don't have any NVGs on. So you're really at an advantage that I think it's worth trying. If you haven't tried it, I definitely recommend trying it. Yeah. And I think you hit on something there that I've kind of forgot about. But the reason I believe that night raids are so effective for completing tasks is because player scavs don't have night vision. They're running around like blind rats trying to pull loot out. And if you're standing out in the middle of the open, it doesn't matter. A player scav is going to have a very, very hard time spotting you. PMCs may come in with really good gear and really good night vision, but that's not really any different than daytime. You're going to run into thick boys no matter what. But when it comes to player scavs, night raids kind of nullify them, or they at least render them closer to useless than, than any other way. Whereas in daytime, a scav with a Mosin and no other equipment is super dangerous. During a night raid, they probably don't even see you. Something to keep in mind when you're doing tasks is, again, I'm going to come back to, I wish I knew this earlier because there's some tasks that I think would be so easy at night that are actually really hard during the day. Yep, absolutely. So kind of speaking of tasks and the hideout progression system, I kind of want to touch on strength because this is another skill that you have to level that I think is easier to do at night. So I was doing strength leveling at night anyways, but it was kind of a total time sink, complete waste of time because I would go in overburdened with a big bag like an alpha or something that had four metal fuel cans in it. And then I would take a pistol because I wasn't anticipating and doing anything productive other than walking around the perimeter of shoreline. And there are some risks to that because there's also, there's PMCs and scavs that spawn. And so I'd say like I made it out maybe eight out of 10 times and two out of 10 times I ran into someone that killed me. I decided after we started doing our night raids to throw on some night vision, take a scope Mosin in with me and still be overloaded, but snipe people along the way. So it's really interesting because my top strength skill leveling run, I had nine kills. And they were all long distance. And they were all just 
plinking them at night. One PMC, and that particular was one PMC and eight scavs, just kind of walking around the outside of the map and a couple of player scavs because they can't see you at night on shoreline. They can't see you. It was not only doing a task which I didn't want to do in the first place because leveling strength is very monotonous and boring and I think the skill is broken, but I still had to do it to get to level three so I could continue upgrading the vents in my hideout so I could get the generator upgraded and keep the progression of the hideout going. But along the way, taking that and turning it into something that was mildly useful by kind of approaching it from a different perspective. So I do think that you can use night vision in a lot of different ways, not only for task leveling, but also for um, skill leveling as well. And it's just something to keep in mind. Yeah, I agree. I'm glad we talked about it because it's something that I was honestly, I don't know if I would have admitted it to myself, but I was kind of scared of it because of my initial feelings on it. So it's been cool to see that. I'm glad you're having the same experience. And for those of you that have never jumped in a night vision raid or have been hesitating to do so, I'd say give it a shot. Yeah, for sure. And I'll also say too that if I were to be perfectly honest with myself too, Gear Fear came into a huge play into not even trying it, right? Because it's more to lose. It's more expensive gear that you have to rebuy again. So what I'm finding is that It is about the quality of gear you take with you. If you take inexpensive gear that you're afraid of, you know, that you're not afraid of losing, you're not setting yourself up in a way that is going to give you the best chance of success. And if you play scared or if you play only defensive, your mindset's wrong and you end up not setting yourself up for success. So I think it just comes down to the progression of the Tarkov player because in the beginning you don't have any money and you have to have a way to make money, right? And that's kind of a leads to gear fear, which leads to not using good gear, which leads to putting you at a disadvantage. And it's kind of this whole progression that you kind of have to overcome and get over. And especially the first 10 levels without having access to the flea market, you know, that is kind of a hard thing to do. But once you get access to the flea market, your whole game changes. Yeah, exactly. And obviously, that's what we wanted to talk about today. But when it comes to the gear fear, like you said, and night raids, I guess I would put this out there. If you are struggling with your economy right now, I don't think jumping right into night raids is the best thing to do. But you also mentioned progression. And I think once you are getting more stable in your economy, this is something to throw in your wheelhouse. You know, if you find a night vision helmet on somebody or you find a helmet that you could turn into night vision, maybe it's time to throw those goggles on and go give it a shot. But what I want to do right now is transition into our flea market discussion. And for those of you that are more experienced, we're going to start by doing a basic overview of everything you can do in the flea market and what it's all about. And then we're going to move into some specific examples on how to make money using the flea market, because that's one of the most common questions we get is people asking me to ask Eric how he made money in the flea market. (laughs) But I do want to hit the basic overview because one of the things that I realized is I come from playing a lot of World of Warcraft and that game has an auction house, which is that game's flea market. Eric also played World of Warcraft, still plays it. We both do. But if you're coming from a game that doesn't have a flea market, this thing can be really intimidating on how to use it, meaning how to use the advanced functions. I think everybody kind of gets the gist that once you unlock this at level 10, used to be level 5, you can sell things on there to other players. And that's really the basic of what you need to know is that it's establishing a value for certain items by what other players are willing to sell for them. 
And then there's the balance check of the traders because they will also pay for most items in the game. And so that's where you're kind of gauging what something is worth. So the way this market works is a number of ways. So you can post one or multiple of the same item and you list a per unit price or a trade for that item on the flea market and other people can then pay for that item with currency or the trade that you requested. As you sell more and more items on the flea market, there's actually a reputation on the flea market for being a good seller or you've sold enough goods to earn the right to sell more and more items. So if you were ever wondering what the little, I don't know, it's like a, it looks like a coin maybe in the upper right is, and it usually has an up arrow or a down arrow based on what your last flea market transaction was. As that goes up, you get access to more and more trades. So when you first initially get going, you start out with the ability to post three trades. And then as you move up and onward with the amount sold, you can earn more trading slots. There's also a wish list within the flea market. And it, this is one of those ones where you right click an item in the flea market and you can add it to your wish list. So I want to spend a second on here because there's a lot of people that don't even realize what this is good for or how to use it. And for those of you that are moving forward in your hideout progression, I love the wish list because I have a maxed out hideout. So I'm producing sugar, super water, moonshine, ammunition, magazine cases, propitol, all for profit mostly now because I have enough that I'm using in my stash that I make the rest for profit. And so what I use the wish list for, and I'm curious what you think about this, Eric, I use this to put all of the items that I need to buy to make my profit crafts in the hideout on my wish list so that I can quickly click through them and buy what I need because I know how many I need, right? I know I need two chocolate bars. I know I need three bolts, three screw nuts. I need one water filter. I need a metal cutting scissor. And then I need one of each gunpowder and two fuel tanks. And that lets me craft everything in my hideout every time they're up. It's interesting. I actually have never used the wish list. I, I just never have used the wish list. I'm kind of aware of what it is, but I have never, never used it. To be honest, I think I'm guessing, actually, I actually want to show a response on this. When you hear this, I want to know in Discord if you've ever used the wish list and if so, what you used it for. But my gut tells me that most people have accidentally put items on it and then it changes their little context menu so that they remove the item immediately <laughs> the next time they right click on it. And I don't know that people are actually using it effectively. That whole idea is something that I wanted to bring up about the overall way to look at the flea market. And I honestly think that flea markets or trading systems within MMOs are basically economic PvP, right? It's all about how can I make more money than the person next to me or at least maximize my economy value. And so people do weird stuff on the auction house and try to scam you. But it's all of these little advanced tools that I look at them to say, how can this help me make more money efficiently? And I try to look at every single tool in there that through that lens. And the wish list was one that for honestly, for a while, I was like, I don't understand why this is here. If I'm looking for something, I'm going to go buy it. But then I realized it, that I could use it as a shopping list for the things I'm using to profit and save having to go right click that item in my inventory or from the hideout and go back and forth over and over when 
after a while, you know exactly how many of which item you need. Yeah, it, it's a that's a really good use for it. I guess I'm a little bit more traditional of an MMO player, and so I've used spreadsheets for that kind of thing. The wishlist is probably a better tool, to be honest with you. I would guess that you probably could be more efficient using the wishlist for that. Because one of the things about Tarkov that is good and bad is that it is it's good. It has a very robust auction house flea market system, but the tools to interact with the data are very clunky. You know, like mature MMOs out there will have an API that people write add-ons for that you can sort and start, you know, figuring out the flea market auction house. You can start scanning for data. Now, there is that one website, the Tarkov Loop website. Somehow, they must pull the data from the game somehow, right, to get the relative value of things. And I have used that. It's not always accurate, though, so I'd be careful. Like, be careful. It's I don't know how often it gets updated, but if you're looking for a major high value score, like something that really is going to be impactful to your personal economy, I would make sure you double, triple check that before you go ahead and pull the trigger on that. I would say that the wish list is something that everyone should probably try. And I know that I'm going to start using it more just to get better at it. Yeah, I think it's actually a really good tool that again, I wasn't super aware of it until I was like, how can I use this for myself? And That's kind of how I look at every advanced system within a market or a trading area. And so the next thing I wanted to talk about was the different ways that you can filter the flea market through the little settings wheel on the flea market. And you can actually filter it down so it only shows you offers by players or traders by currency type. You can set a minimum quantity. You can set a minimum and maximum condition. You can set it up so that it removes barter items so that you're not looking at trades. You're only looking at straight currency transactions. You can have it display functional items only, so not broken down guns. It's only going to show you stuff that's working and not broken or disassembled. You can have it show you things that are expiring soon. You can have it show you only things from certain traders or players. So you can have it display offers from certain categories. And then at one of my favorite ones is at the very bottom of the filter list, you can have it remember your selected filter. So if you really only want to deal with items that are listed for rubles, you can just set it up so that it's rubles and then you do uh, remember the selected filter. That way, when you go back, it's there. Always the cautionary tale of the red rebel and the chocolate. Your saved searches or your remembered search does reset from time to time. Or if you're doing some weapon modding, it will often reset and keep an eye on that. But there there were a few of these that I wanted to point out because, again, it's really easy to just put on rubles and just show me ruble trades. But there's some really neat things you can do with these other filters. And I'm curious if you have any specific ones too, but I love the quantity one. and. The reason is actually something I want to talk about and how to make some money on this particular part of the game in the flea market. But you can use the minimum quantity in a unique way or unique ways. But you can also do things like display items from traders only because they will show up in the flea market and you can see what they're offering for and you can compare it to what players are offering. Additionally, I really don't think the display functional items is super useful. Maybe that's a good thing to do if you just don't want to mess with modding. But as I've got better at gun modding, I don't really buy non-functional guns. So um, I don't really know why that one's in there. But are there any of these that really jump out to you 
as something you use a lot when you're setting up your filters? I definitely make sure that I get rid of the barter trades. For the most part, barter trades are a bad deal, or they're used to move money around between friends, move guns around, move, you know, move a mag full of ammo that's really good between like your veteran friend and you're just starting off or something. But right. I don't really see barter trades as something that really is beneficial ever. Like I, I, I have never run across one that I would do. And so I always have the remove barter trades uh, completely unselected. Now, one thing that is getting more interesting over time is that since I'm leveling my hideout and leveling my traders, that the traders are starting to become more of a thing that I'm using. And that's not necessarily tied to the flea market. But if you have that remove barter trade set, I do believe that you will remove some of the uh, trader uh, trader barter trades that you can do for things like Correct. Like, for example, the scav knives is a good one because everyone's like, why should I keep the wooden scav knife or the, the brown one or the silver one, right? And it's it's for two different guns, right? The eight wooden ones gets you the MP5 and the four silver ones gets you the pistol. I forget which pistol it is, but the pistol. Yeah. And so, like, you're not going to see that come up if you search for those guns, if you have that remove barter trades option set in your filter. However, I will say one thing, though, that I, for me... Like, I don't feel like I missed that in the early game. I feel like the risk of doing a bad barter trade in the early game is probably more than what you would miss in having that filter set from the traders. So, like, what do you think about that? Um, yeah, I think generally I don't remove barter trades. I usually filter by currency and I look for barters differently. And it kind of led me into the last things you can use the flea market for, but it's called linked search and required search. So if you right click on an item and you do required search, and this is how I'm going to tie it back to your point. If you right click an item, like let's say red gunpowder, you're like, what's this worth? What the heck? Why? If you right click it and hit required search, and then you go display offers from traders and remove your currency filter it's going to show you which traders are going to offer something where that red gunpowder is included. It's not going to show you the hideout stuff, but you can go and see that, for example, red gunpowder trades to Prapper for a pistol, right? And so that's how I kind of use what the traders show in the flea market is by using that required search because oftentimes it's those trades that establish some of the value for an item, or it's that they're used in the hideout for something that you can sell on the flea market. So yeah, if you remove barter items, you could be hamstringing yourself a little bit. I don't know how often it would really hurt you, but you're right. It, it would remove the ability to see some of that. Yeah. The thing is, though, there are much larger opportunities to get scammed with barter trades than there are to make some kind of super meaningful trade with a trader. At least in my opinion. I agree. And, and so I think if you're really getting into the flea market slash auction house in a game for the first time, and there are very distinct groups of people playing Tarkov. If you come from an FPS background, this is going to be weird. This is not something that most FPS games have. The loot progression and the uh, the flea market, all of that is not really something most FPS games do. They have appearance changes, right? You get appearance changes and you maybe get special nameplates or something, but it's not like this. There's not an in-game economy 
that totally changes everything about the way the game works. So I would say early game, especially while you're still learning everything about Tarkov, I just I'd stay away from the barter trades to beginning. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think they're super dangerous. I fell to probably the worst one. So it's not just new to the game. It's anybody. You just got to be cautious when using the flea market. And it's really on those trades where people can catch you. So be aware of that. And I mentioned it, but the last real function of the flea market is the linked search. You know, so if you're trying to figure out what suppressor to put on a gun or, oh, I have a mount, what can go on this? You can use right-clicking an item and do a linked search, and it's going to show you what that item can work with. It can be really useful once you have a basic idea of where everything goes, but it can also really confuse you to see all of the items that are linked to that particular item, or more specifically, the items that aren't linked. You know, so if you right-click a gun and do a linked search trying to find a foregrip, oftentimes the receiver or the the gun overall isn't going to have a foregrip in the linked search because you actually have to pick either the stock or the actual, uh, what do you call the barrel that has the mount on it for the foregrip. So linked search can be really good once you have an idea of what to actually search. Oftentimes it's most effective to double click a gun, for example, and then you right click the actual part that you need to attach something to. But that's a pretty advanced function. And as you start doing some of the gunsmith tasks, some of the gunsmith tasks, man, that's hard to say, through mechanic, you'll get a little more comfortable with this. So link search, great function, super useful, but it can be kind of tricky because it doesn't always show you what you think it might show you or what you want it to show you. It's a little more intricate than that. So anything else about the flea market in general that you think is worth bringing up? I'm just going to echo what you said by just saying that link search is all about finding the part that you want to attach a thing to. So dive into the thing attached to the thing attached to the thing that you need to get a part for. Thingception. (laughs) It's thingception on whatever you're trying to do, whether it's a helmet, a gun, whatever, and do link search on the part that has the open slot and you'll find what you're looking for. It's a little unintuitive at first, but I will say that it's exactly the opposite. It's very intuitive once you understand how the system works and it becomes very easy to find upgrades. And it's how advanced players build guns because they can find that grip that gives them this much more stats, right, in either direction. And so link search is extremely powerful. Play with it. The best thing to do is find a gun and start diving into the different parts and just play with it and say, oh yeah, look, I can get this, I can get this, start playing with it. Find a helmet. Most of the helmets you can attach stuff to, right? Most people don't, but you can and and start playing with it. Oh, I can find this, I can do this and kind of see like, what are the first things that I really learned about Link Search was uh, when you're breaking down an AK, right? And you have different like dust covers and different rail mods and things like that. You can, there's so many different options for it you don't see any of that until you start getting on the specific part. And so if you really want to learn link search and you don't know much about it, find an AK on a scav, put it in your hideout, do a disassemble and all the parts will be at the top of your stash and do a right-click link search on each one of the parts. You'll start to see everything about the gun and all the different pieces that attach to that piece and it'll start to make a lot of sense. And so that'd be my tip on link search. One follow-up point about trader leveling 
is that when you're using the traders and you're looking for these barters, every time you level to a new level, so say you get from level one to level two with your trader, one thing that I've done that's kind of helped me understand the trader system is I click on the filter for level two only for that trader. And then the right side on that list of things that you can filter for, the top one, it looks like kind of an infinity arrow where they're chasing each other. You click on that, and that's the barters for that level. And so then you can just see, okay, I just unlocked mechanic level two. I click on my infinity arrow there. Well, that's what I call it, whatever you want to call it. But my trading arrow, here's my trades that are new to me. And I really found that useful in understanding what to do with all of the stuff that you get from scabbing and then say, okay, like, for example, I'm going to go find matches now because 15 matches gets me a gas can and my hideout uses gas every day. So I need to get gas, whereas matches people would throw away, right? And so it's stuff like that, that you really understand the power with the traders. Now, like Mike said, you can do that in the flea market. That's very valid. But I learned how to do that without using the flea market. I just would kind of anticipate, okay, I'm going to get a new set of trades. And it made more sense to me uh, doing it that way. And so it might help anybody out there listening to this. Now, you brought up such a critical thing that I got to confess, when I was thinking about this section of this show, I was just thinking about how to make money. And we're obviously going to spend some time talking about that because it's what we prepared to do. But your point about the matches and the fuel, when people are asking me or you or anybody, how do you make currency in this game? There's another critical side to that, which is how do you not lose currency? Right. And ways you lose currency are, boy, if you're not taking advantage of the trades to get fuel, which you need for your generator, which can lead to making more money through your hideout, you may be spending right now 80 to 90K per fuel tank, the blue ones at least. If you're not putting yourself in a position to make money, you may be losing money by not taking full advantage of the things that, like Eric just brought up. And that fuel can is a great one. I'm at a point where I don't really pick up matches anymore because I, I kind of do the uh, fuel can roulette where I'll buy two and oftentimes I'll get one of those two is full and someone sold it at the cheapest price. So I throw that into my generator. But anyway, great point. That's a great way to not lose money by taking advantage of what's in the game and through your traders. So yeah, that's a great point about not losing money, which ultimately is what's going to help you build your currency long term. Yep, I totally agree. Uh, one specific thing about the blue fuel cans, which I think is super interesting, is that I'll give you an example of how not to waste money to make money. You know, you can create a blue fuel can in your hideout. You can make a blue fuel can for six Zippos, I believe, and eight lighters, the orange lighters. And again, most people just throw that away. So we talked about how we want to have each square in our inventory be you know, worth something, right? Like be 10, 20, 30,000 per square when you're scabbing. So people focus on super high value things when they're scaving. And I have along the way done that. But of course, I've also looked and said, okay, well, I need to make an, a couple of blue fuel cans today so I can perhaps do a weapons case. Well, I'm going to go and just look for matches and zippos and lighters, right? And usually in two or three scav runs, I get enough to do that. It may take like 45 minutes and I've made probably 200K that I didn't spend. So it just makes those trades and those different things you craft in your hideout more valuable. So it's all the different level of detail to pay attention to in the in the system because there's lots of trades designed to make you profitable, but you got to find them. Right. And we're kind of into that section now where we want to talk about specific 
things you can do to make money using the flea market and things that we have done. Now, I want to put this qualifier in there in that we're going to give you very specific examples of what worked. At one point, sometime in the past, it could have been right before I went live on this show because I was testing things and I have an example of that. It may not work for you tomorrow. The idea is the strategy or the way to think about it, and you have to apply that to what you're seeing right now or after you listen to this episode. So I want to talk about two specific examples of things that I've done, and these are specifically flips that I've done, and I'm sure that Eric has a couple too. But again, I want to reiterate the point I made before about how I look at the filters, any advanced filter in the game, but specifically for this episode in the flea market, on what can this filter do for me to help me not necessarily what does the filter do. So with the quantity filter specifically, I use this, I was just testing some stuff out and I wanted to make sure that I really fully understood how it operated uh, before talking about it. But I was doing some factory raids and I wanted to have my secured container completely open. And so one of the things that I do there is I will go buy survival kits that have two uses remaining on them so that I'm not running around factory with 15 use survival kits in my secured container. I don't mind if I lose a, you know, two or three use survival kit. So what I do when I buy those is I go to the flea market and I set the minimum quantity to be between 15% and 100%. So it gets rid of all of the 1 out of 15 survival kits and shows me everything above that. And then I sort by cheapest rubles to most expensive rubles so that on the very top of my screen, I'm seeing the cheapest survival kit with a quantity of 2 or more. And what happened was there was somebody that posted a boatload of survival kits with 13 or 14 uses for the price of what the cheapest three use survival kits were. I bought 17 of them and flipped them from like 19,000 to 36,000 with just a few clicks. So that's one that I did. And you may be saying, well, geez, that's not a whole lot. Well, that made me like 110K, (laughs) you know? So after the fees and everything was done, that was an easy 110K I did because I was going to buy something, but then I saw something in the flea market that just wasn't quite right. It was a little bit off from normal. And I'm like, wait a minute, those are 13 uses and they're compared to the same price as the ones at two. So that was the first one. And then the second is a flip that I did during the last drops event. And you may be able to take advantage of this right now because as we're recording right now, there's actually a drop event going on and it's for the phased array. Now, again, this may not work, but typically when Battlestate decides to send out items via drops or a care package that everybody gets or a lot of people get, the flea market gets inflated, meaning the supply goes up and the demand usually remains about the same, which results in a price decrease for a time. So these phased arrays are actually really hard to find. They also take up a three by three space. So when you find them in a raid, they're not always easy to get out and they're heavy. And they're used in a very good trade for a weapons case through mechanic. So what will happen if you keep an eye on it, these phased arrays are going to drop really low, sometimes even under 100,000 when drops events go on. 
So if you buy up as many as you can safely hold and hang on to them for a week or two, usually you can flip them for sometimes double, but usually you can sell them for 165k with ease, but I've seen them go as high as 220k. So not a quick flip, but again, just another strategy that if a bunch of people get something for free, they're going to flood the market with it because they want the rubles. You can take advantage of that and make money longer term. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. There are So the drop events introduce interesting variability into the flea market. There was a recent event where Battlestate gave everybody a bunch of stuff, like a bunch of Bitcoins and a bunch of armors and things like that. And I'm sure most people's first reaction was, great, I'm going to sell this as a level six armor. Not many people were going to actually use it. Let me kind of give a little breakdown here. Let me back up a little bit because I want to explain the thought process here. When Battlestate does that, so when they release a bunch of stuff, you know that it's been done at a certain time because you can look at the date and the time on the mail that it comes in. And so if it's more than, let's say it's two or three hours old, right, since you got your mail with all your stuff, go find that item on the flea market, look at some trades or look at some sale prices that are have like three or four hours left because they've been on the market longer than the market's been flooded. And then you can find out what the value of that piece really is. So I'll give you an example of this. There was this black level six armor that everybody got in the last uh, drop slash Battlestake giveaway, right? And they got so cheap that I was buying them. I basically had 20 of them in my inventory and I was flipping them almost instantly for about 80k, almost instantly. That day I made over a million rubles. I think it was like 1.3 million rubles in an hour flipping the armors because the people that are selling them are selling them out of kind of either early players who just need the money. And even though they were getting 200k for them, it was great to them, right? 200k is a lot of money to like a level five or a level six player. Yep. But but they normally sell for 300 or 320 or something like that. I had a filter going and I just kept refreshing, kept refreshing. And if I saw it for under 170k, I bought it instantly. And then once I had I think it was like six or seven of them. I put them all back on the flea market for 290 and they all sold within like five minutes because there was the glutton and people were doing this constantly. And so that day, because I did the research before I started flipping, I knew where the stable price was. And I knew that even if I missed the rush of people, I still could sell those and get my money back, including the second part of this is whenever you sell in the flea market, if you notice, you're always going to pay a deposit. So when you're flipping an item, you have to take into account what the item costs plus the deposit, and that's your total cost for the item. And I knew that my total cost for the item with the deposit included in that number, I would still make money if I missed the rest of the event. And every time Battlestate does this, does a giveaway or floods the market, there's an opportunity for this. With the exception of a couple things where the traders will actually pay you a stabilized price for them, like for example, Bitcoin. There's a reason why Bitcoin's always stabilize at 145,000 on the flea market or, you know, whatever. It's because therapist, therapist pays 145,000 for your Bitcoin. And if you're making Bitcoins just to sell them, it's another example of understanding it's a 7K deposit to sell $145,000, 145,000 ruble Bitcoin. So it's cheaper and better for you just to sell to therapist. And not only that, it increases your volume with therapists. So there's another number with the traders in the upper right corner there, the amount of money that you've bought and sold with them. And this just increases that number. So all that being said, 
the big thing to pay attention to is find out what the normalized price is, meaning find the point in the flea market list of trades that's being offered and, and for sale where they start to look like they've been sitting there for a while. And you know, every item has this point. That's great. That's a great point. That's something I've never even thought to look at is what was this being posted for a couple hours ago? Because you're exactly right. That's a brilliant way to look at it. And it's again, it's making the flea market filters work for you to give you information that maybe other people aren't considering. And you know, I, I would offer one flip side of selling on the flea market versus the traders. Once you are approaching max hideout or traders, you may want extra slots to sell for on the flea market. So in a Bitcoin, for example, if therapist is paying 145 and it's 152 on the flea market, but you're already max reputation with therapist, it's probably more advantageous for you to sell it on the flea market, even though it's the same price, because you get additional flea market reputation so that you can sell more there. So there will be a point where that may change for you, but it's always nice to know that therapist is going to sell you or buy stuff from you um, at a reasonable and in some cases, really good price, which is setting the market. Yep. And the make case is another one. You can make that in your hideout. It costs, if you were to buy everything just on the flea market on an average day, it costs about 230K to 250K to make that particular thing. And you can sell it to therapist, no deposit for 318. So once you get to that right. point where you can make a make case, every six hours, you can make like 70 or 80K. But if you go one step deeper into it, you can make more money by scav running to get the parts to make the fuel cans. We need two of them to make the make case, right? Instead of spending 160K on those particular pieces to, for the trade to get the make case, you save that money by just doing some scav runs. And so little things like that, I call them points of efficiency along the way in the economy make a huge difference in how much money you have to spend. You know, they, a lot of people ask me, how do you have 14 million rubles at level five? This is what I did. All I did was incredibly efficient about scav running, and I was incredibly efficient about using what I could make at the hideout at that level. And it's just gotten better for me as I progressed my hideout and pushed different things. Yeah, and it one of the things that it reminded me of is, it's not just with new players, this is everybody. But oftentimes, especially if you're playing with other people, you'll be in a raid, somebody will loot something, or they're trying to figure out what an item's worth, what they should keep. The easy thing to do is to answer them when they say, what's this worth? I think it's more important to say, I don't know, you should find out. <laughs> and the reason I say that is for your economy and going forward. I promise you, if you didn't know the value of a Bitcoin, and the GP coin, and you took the GP coin out of the raid, and you left the Bitcoin, and you went and looked them up, you will never make that mistake in raid again if you had one slot to take those out in. And so figuring out what items are worth, but going a step further to figure out why. Well, maybe therapist pays 145k for a Bitcoin, but there's also the NVGs like we talked about, which I believe it's mechanic, and I could be wrong on that, but there's a trade where it's a Bitcoin for a very good set of night vision goggles. Or they may be part of a recipe in the hideout. Like we were talking about, empty fuel tanks can be used for the mag case, which again, can be sold on the flea market for about 325,000 rubles right now, or therapist will pay you 318,000 rubles for it. So there's something establishing the value 
It may be a task that requires it. But if you do the research to figure out why things are priced the way they are, you're going to be able to find those discrepancies in the market. You know, and for me, the way this occurred was I was running Ollie runs in Interchange all the time when I started. It's about the only way I made money. Well, there's a very specific set of items that drop there that were valuable, and I would get them over and over and over and over. And I didn't really know what they did, but I knew what they sold for on the flea market. I didn't care about the traders. I wanted to make money, just like Eric did when he was running the flea market at level five. But I noticed when something changed, like when motors went up to 80K from 45, I was like, ooh, I'm going to sell these. Or don't be afraid to master certain items. You don't need to know everything about every item, but do the research. It will help you tremendously when you're trying to make money on the flea market. Yep. And the last thing that I'll talk specifically about the hideout related to flea market is to push your med station. Now, there is a crafting trade that you can create propital. You make seven propitals after you make other items to trade for them. That is a profitable trade. Propital sell between 12 to 14k a piece. So you're going to make, you know, like 85 to 90k on that, you know, gross after you sell them all. And it's going to have about a $5,000 deposit, you know, so you're going to probably net right around 80k, let's just say. But I will say also related to the med station is you're going to spend a lot of money on the game for meds because you have to have them to progress. And uh, the cheeses that you get from scavs are not going to be enough once you start getting into tasks. You got to buy like survival kits, like Trigger was saying. You got to buy IFAX and all that stuff. And those are expensive because you buy them in lots of quantities until you can make them for yourself. And one of the big things is when you get to the med station to level three, which is really not that hard to do, you start to be able to make your own meds from the different scav things that you find along the way when when you're scaving. And again, it just comes down to this point about you make money by not spending money too. So you make money by being efficient and you also don't always hyper-focus on filling your bags and scav runs with the most valuable item. Have an idea and a plan for what you need. And if you're short on meds, you want to go scav and you're going to pull out things, you're going to pull out cheeses, you're going to pull out, you know, different like meds, the little white icon that's just meds, right? Things that maybe you would not pull out. Maybe you'd gloss over that stuff. But if you do two or three runs of that, you're good for a couple days and you can just crank them out of your med station and make IFAX every day and make, you know, everything that you need every day. And I think that that is a kind of non-traditional and kind of different way of thinking. Most people go for the easy big hit. Like I want to find a Ledex, I want to find a Tetris, I want to find that motor, and then I'll just whatever, I'll buy everything else. Well, I haven't found many Ledexes or Tetrises or of that, that kind of thing that are super reliable. But once you get efficient at making your own stuff, it's an extra step. It takes a little bit more time, but you start to not have to worry about running out of money. Yeah, and, and you hit it so perfectly on the head because I love ways of making money or rather not losing money that allow me to use something and then profit from it later or at least make my money back. And the Propital hideout craft is actually my favorite one because it requires a golden star, an ibuprofen, and then two pile of meds. The reason I love this is that if you come across an ibuprofen or a golden star, use it until it has one use left. And then Either go buy a 
ibuprofen or golden star, whichever you didn't use, and use that one until it has one use left. So then you're sitting on a one-use golden star and a one-use ibuprofen, and then you can go buy two pile of meds and you turn those four things into seven propitol. So you got, you know, they're both 10 use. So you got 18 uses of painkillers out of those golden star and ibuprofen if they were both full. And then once they're both at one quantity, you pair them up with two piles of meds and now you have seven propitol, which you can go sell. And if you just purely do that on the flea market, pile of meds like 12K, propitol sells for 12K. So just doing that lets you profit about five propitol, whatever they're selling for on the flea market or to therapist. And so it's just a way to stabilize your economy by using something that you need and then turning it into profit or at least saving money later, which is also why the magazine case is so popular, because you can use your fuel tanks in your generator and then you can use empty ones to make that money back when you craft the magazine case. Yep. And it's really interesting, too, because as you say, as you progress through the game, I don't use the blue fuel tanks in my generator anymore because they don't last long enough. I use the silver ones, which are 100 out of 100, whereas the blue ones, I think, are 60. And still, I make them, though. And if I if I do make one, then I'll use it in my generator, and then I'll do it for a make case. It is kind of interesting. The farther you get into this, the more it just kind of becomes, oh, yeah, I've got that trades up, so I need to go get a couple of these. And it becomes a lot easier. I realize listening to this, it may seem like that's way too complicated. I just want to go shoot people in the face. But that's the difference between this game and other games that are FPS games. This is two games in one. This has an entire auction house game that is really probably unfamiliar to some of you. And I think that that's kind of an important point about how Tarkov is attracting a lot of different people, right? Different types of players. And so I would encourage everyone who hasn't gotten into the hideout and flea market game, you haven't gone too deep into it, go beyond just trying to go for the monster scav run and see what you can do with the efficiency of your your hideout in the flea market. Yeah, I think it all comes down to knowledge, right? Every system in this game, you have to treat it like a massive multiplayer game. They're deep. You got to learn it. You can do it at surface level, but you may be missing out on stuff. So again, we hope that these strategies are really helpful, at least to make you think differently about the flea market or ways that you could be using it to your advantage. And the last thing that I'll leave you with are a couple of ideas that I haven't tried yet, but I think could be profitable on the flea market. And the three that I think about that I haven't done yet, and I probably will try it, is creating fully created guns for the gunsmith tasks. I'd imagine that there's some healthy profit in that. I just don't know how you'd make sure they sell. Furthermore, you could uh, scam people by putting up Red Rebel for 78 chocolate. I don't think I could ever bring myself to do it, but there's ways to make money doing that. And then the last one would be uh, price setting. And I know this is happening because the price of bolts and screw nuts has gone through the roof. They used to be 9 or 10 K. And now they regularly sit at about 16 and 17K. And it's probably a demand issue, but I'm guessing that there's either bots or people that are buying up inexpensive ones all the time and reposting it because the fee is so low. So if you see something that, you know, the first two trades are 9K and 10K, and then it jumps to like 22K, well, buy those cheap ones and repost them. You'll make your money back and you've just set a new floor on the item. So those are the ones that I haven't tried yet but I've thought about. 
Yeah, I'm not sure about guns because I don't know, and maybe you can answer this question because this is my initial thought on that. I don't know how to filter the value of a gun based on what parts are assigned to it. Yeah, I don't either. <laughs> it's like, it's like you know, this doesn't, there's no like specific area to say this completes gunsmith part eight. I actually really like that idea. I'm just not exactly sure how to pull that off. <laughs> yeah, I think it, it requires some sophistication on the person trying to buy the item because they'd have to be double clicking the gun to see if it meets the gunsmith requirements, you know, so it, it wouldn't be a quick sell for sure. But yeah, you're right. I'm not sure. But what could be trackable is what you put into the gun, right? You would know what it costs to build it. And so you could do a healthy markup on that if it meets the gunsmith requirement and see if it sells. But yeah, I haven't tried it. I just think there's probably a way to make money doing that. Yep, I'd agree. There's definitely value in, you know, helping people to gain time efficiency in the auction house or in the flea market. That kind of goes or rings true with most games. I don't know about you, but uh, I'm starting to see my green bar. We're at our over our 60-minute exfil here. We definitely <laughs> found the end. So that's pretty much it. We made it to the exfil, which means we're seconds away from disappearing. So first of all, thank you, everybody, for uh, taking time to listen or watch. Hopefully, you're checking this out on your favorite podcast audio app. Or we always remember, we're available on YouTube, too. Go check us out there. You can actually actually watch us do the show. It's kind of fun. But you can always find us on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher, everywhere else. And believe me, as we're doing podcasts, we're finding out that there are a lot of places that people are finding podcasts. So we appreciate each and every one of you finding our podcast in your own special place. If you're having trouble with it, let us know. We've been fixing them as we come across them, and it's been uh, been really interesting to discover all that. Also, once again, please subscribe to the YouTube page at XP Media Now on YouTube, and you can also find the Exfil Bootcamp guides there where Trigger and I are putting up a bunch of different ideas and things to hopefully help you get better at the game and share our thoughts if we're getting better at the game. That's it for this week. So remember, you can always find us on Twitter at Rhino Gaming, and where can they find you, Trigger? MTB trigger everywhere. All right. And remember to join the Discord and come hang out with all of us who love Tarkov. And that's pretty much it. So have a good week, everybody. We'll see you next time. See ya.